Hi everyone and welcome back to the Decolonial Hub podcast. This is part two of episode one. Our last conversation was quite rich, so we preferred to cut it into two parts. So thank you, Chris, again, for the opportunity to collaborate with Best Concordia on this podcast series. And today we are still with Napachi in Vancouver, Connie in Montreal, and the hub team Jamila, Cheslin, and Alban. That's me. So let's jump back into it. And Jamila, why don't you share again briefly about the event for listeners who have just tuned into part two? Okay, so when I'm thinking about how it came to be from the seed to the event, we're really into experience to action. I know it sounds cliche at this point, but we really went off of what we need in this moment. And like as students, um, as people working in POT or POT, like how do we feel right now and what would help? Okay, number one, logistically, we were already doing experience to action series. So how do we keep our events rolling? But number two, How do we self-care right now? Because as I said, I was just laying in my bed for a whole week, miserable. My thesis is not going anywhere. My comps are not going anywhere. And neither are my, my members. Like we need to work. How do we have self-care and not feel like crap? Go outside <laughs> and not be scared. Um, how do we learn? Because especially if we're thinking about the fact that the hub has always been based on changing the learning environment. Well, how do we change this new digital learning environment for the phone? Like, how do we keep the idea of being inclusive, celebrating QT BIPOC expertise in this situation? And then how do we keep staying connected with the community? So we had the general theme from the DPPs, like, what's that word? Uh, our mandate. And then we wanted to kind of find a way to keep ourselves relevant and keep ourselves useful in this time. And so then when we're breaking down this decolonial de Uh, to digital, um, it really just came from that moment of having to take ourselves out of the slum and hopefully bring others out of the slum with us. I had a great um, experience in one of my last classes in um, my graphics form, graphic forms course, um, where our professor was really great at engaging with us and she would assign us readings for the week and one week she assigned like a variety of readings and we could choose which ones we wanted to do and then the class would talk about like get into the groups of whoever read what and then talk about the reading and how we felt about it and what came out of it was a few of us had read an article about comics and race, particularly how uh, Black people were depicted in comics in the 20th century. And what we all kind of, the whole group that had read that particular article, we were all um, POC people. And what was the most interesting thing about it was that we found the article sort of not helpful at all it wasn't it was flip-flopping on on being just uh, a piece of paper with facts on it that didn't take a side really and sometimes admonishing you know the caricaturing of of black people in the 1920s in cartoons and what the professor told us after was that she had never really thought about it in those terms she had just 
because she was she was white as well. Um, she didn't realize that it was such a bad article. Not that it was racist itself, but that it wasn't being very informative or giving any kind of information from the perspective of how how black people specifically were being portrayed. And so she, after our conversation with the whole class, she did more research on better articles relating to race and comics. And so I think that her just method of engaging with students really helped because she learned from it and then passed it on to us in the next iteration, like giving us links to better articles and apologizing for assigning something that in hindsight was not super useful to us. Um, so that was really great. And I think it, it's a good way to sort of approach teaching if, if you're in that position is to, to be open to what your students are saying, like to hear what they have to say about a reading before you sort of lecture on it is a great way to stay horizontal as in the context of what we're all talking about. That's the problem is like, we need to have an assert allyship between like the administration, the student, the staff and the profs. And it's not currently existing. And like you're saying, Jamila, uh, we're not at the seat of the table. And so we are pushed into a situation where we have to put like our skin in the game on our own, right? You have to stick your neck out and you don't know how it's going to be. And if there's a backlash, it's going to fall onto your own shoulders. And that responsibility is not dispersed. Like oftentimes, especially as a graduate student, like you're going to be the only person of color in your courses, not to amount not even taking into account the other parts of your identities that are minoritized. And so they look at you, like they're talking about historical stuff and they assume you, like you're saying, Jamila, either to be the, the, like the poster child, to be the pigeonholer, um, and like to be super unidimensional in the way that's going to placate their sensibilities. And um, like you said, it should be consultation for like those syllabi. And what happens is when you decide to apply emotional courage, there's the backlash, there's the threat of academic suicide, there's a threat of your mobility being just thwarted inside of the system because now you are going to be uh, categorized as a problematic entity that is unruly and whose allegiance is not to the conformity of the system. And the only way for you to self-defend is by your own rhetoric or intelligence, but it's not a guarantee that there's going to be an active listening on the other side. And so it's pretty much like shouting into the void um, in terms of the impact it has, even as you're not shouting. And I'm, I'm sure we can all think of examples when this happened. Uh, I'm not going to get into specifics, but um, <laughs> those instances where you see the syllabi is problematic and you decide to address a reading that's been imposed. And then right. the way that you tackle it is so off-field that now the prof probably is the first time it's happened to them. So they don't have any back, you know, like, like personal history to help them frame that reaction. Then it's only you. Then it turns into a sense of confrontation because right. they don't want to lose the ground, the higher ground of self-established authority that they have in front of you intellectually and politically. And so they feel threatened. And it's happened to me that I've been told I was too vocal in class and that my interventions were intimidating to other students. And I was laughing because I'm the only queer Black person of color in your class. And now I am a threat 
to other people who are so comforted and they're privileged that they don't apply discomfort to voice dissent. And I do, but now I am the one who is unruly, right? And right. so you always have to mind your steps, mind your P's and your Q's, and you have to refine a lexicon of, of like anti-colonialism, but at the same time, be mindful that you don't want to put into jeopardy your academic prospects, futures, connections, and reports with the system, right? And they force you into a fake binary where either you're with us or against us and a binary where it's silence or they decide how they're going to decode your silence. Like they want you to talk if only you say what they want to hear and when it's a comfort to them, but they don't want the truth and they don't want the veridity of it. And so it's, it's hard to find allies in the system right off the gate because it's an education. And so I feel in the hub, we spoke of this a lot and we look at student sovereignty, what are things we can do to self-protect ourselves individually and as a community? And then what are the steps that we can come to establish to bridge the gap between the, the broken system, administration, students, and profs alike? Because we are not for that practice of antagonism, like we're not about that life, but we need to acknowledge that it is a reality. And so we cannot operate by being blinded to the state of what is. We need to be cognizant of it so it does not take us by surprise and then destabilizes our tools of mobilization. But, but yeah, like you're saying, this should be a process. We shouldn't have to call them out once it's already there. And the worst part is when that syllabus has been around for ages and you can tell this is 78. I'm sure there's something in 2020 and the last decade that could apply. Or if you stick to the same text, change your perspective. Like you should look at it critically and not you know, in the same form of um, uncritical thought system that you have just established. And this also is an aberration. Anyways, but yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing all the efforts that are trying to actually change this and engage people and all the people who are coming to the table. And actually, Alban, you can totally get off the spotlight if you want to. But I was actually thinking about you as an ally and just kind of tips and tricks because I feel like a lot of allies will feel like, how can I even come to this space without feeling someone getting mad at me or feeling like I'm empowering this space. And so you do so much work in Tanzania and you are just amazing. And so I'm wondering your experience, honestly, as an ally in this work. No, it's a very interesting question. I have to say, I, I ask myself a lot of, I ask myself that question a lot and I always wonder, and I guess um, like, how do I fit? How can I help? But I think it's that experience that is actually how I'm learning more about what it is for other minorities. Anyways, so I think that's uh, just this whole, I'm being able to talk about it like you're doing now. Thank you for that. I think is amazing. And I think, oh my God, there's so much that you guys are bringing up here. But but I think it goes back to the point of not putting that responsibility on people who have been suffering the consequences from others not being responsible. So... For me, the allies is more like understanding that necessity for everyone to be there and not feeling like it's not my problem. So I think that's definitely key. And thinking about the whole like self-care, which seems to be something that resonates so much for everybody, especially after COVID. But I mean, for some, there's been worse. For some, there will be worse things coming in life. So recognizing those lived experiences, I think, and just getting everybody to understand that those rooms like as a hub but also as a classroom or a place where you can actually kind of activate self-care and it reminds me of what Napachi was bringing up when she said she lets students 
like choose to do something physically in their own environment according to their own way to learn so that they can actually be focused i think for self-care and for um like activating solidarity in a classroom i think that's definitely something that we need to recognize like we're all coming from different backgrounds we have different experiences and that's not an impossible problem to solve it's not about reconciling this it's just about creating the space where people will engage with each other in these things because i feel like when we talk about this some people might think but how do i make people who come from different backgrounds understand each other like just assume that this is actually natural or organic it will we will come to an understanding and giving giving it that space and that chance that opportunity i think is really what matters and where allies might bring new ideas and more than anything, everybody's talking and everybody's engaged in solving that common problem. So it's more about recognizing the problem and offering a space to discuss it. And I really like, like once again, what Napachi you were talking about, these small things where you are recognizing that everybody's unique, yet thinking that everybody's capable of engaging with what you're bringing to the table in that space is definitely an amazing thing to remember. Um, just on the same line of thinking about um, allyship, I think there's so many different forms of allyship, particularly for other, like different kinds of POC. Uh, what I really found interesting when I came into my master's was I made a good friend who is an international student and she's from uh, Singapore, but she's, a minority in Singapore, so she doesn't know a lot about Canada, but she has a different sense of colonialism from Singapore and racism towards her people. And so it's really interesting to have conversations with her about that. Um, so that might be an interesting sort of direction to go when, when seeking, like when trying to open up conversations with people is looking into like international student organizations. And one of the things that really opened my eyes a long time ago when I was in my undergrad still, I went to Belize and we were learning about uh, local education there. And one of the connections I made was that Belize was an, an extraction colony compared to a settler colony for the British. And the differences in our education system in Nunavut and Canada in general compared to um, the education system in Belize was as a colonial system, we got a lot of support from the government financially, but they have to maintain a large, like a large sense of control of what we're doing. And feedback on our indigenous um, educational curricula and what I was learning from locals in Belize was much more hands-off approach to like the the colonial government in the past had a much more hands-off approach to the people in their extraction colonies so the education systems there, they had complete autonomy of their own language curriculum and everything, but they got zero financial and governance support. So it was really interesting to see that sort of difference in how the same colonial 
power exerted its its power in different ways depending on what they were getting from that place so like from canada and from belize very different approaches so just learning about that kind of stuff it really changes the way you think about your own situation when you're talking to people who have different experiences from different parts of the world i love that idea of complexifying allyship and also complexifying um allyship and oh oppression complexifying oppression oppression is not a monolith and we don't experience it the same way and that's why these moments and these conversations are so important because especially allyship you assume that all poc are like oh we're together we're stuck you know and it's like oh poc against you know for example the eurocentric people but no like actually a lot of times there's a lot of infighting as you're there's infighting within the poc community because we're all so different yeah the international experience is crazy when you think about even africa and um the black diaspora completely different experiences and a lot of um african immigrants i say this because my family are african immigrants they do not believe in racial blackness like they're like this is obviously not generalization but a lot of my family are like no i'm not black i'm african because of the negative implications of blackness in this country and they're like i i'm like i have like families that are wealthy you know i'm super privileged and then i come here and people are telling me i'm like a minority anyways like you have to complexify blackness you have to complexify allyship having these international experiences or being diaspora enables us to pluralize our epistemological traditions it's a matter of how do we put this into practice and create dialogue within the classroom in a way that actually makes it productive and that we are actually pluralizing and not maintaining that homogeneity that is still persistent today and secondly there's a lot of emotional labor too that we put in to this kind of work that i feel like gets that doesn't get acknowledged no and i love the comments you guys are making about like complexifying identities realities experiences allyship because those are layers that we never really get to i feel lots of the experiences i've had and people well or not so well intentioned trying to do that labor is that it's to me it's always like a crash course 101 on quitty by book and oh then my God, yes. you know yes. you always it's get, like a 101 yeah yeah it never goes beyond that right and i feel that's where like we come in in lots of respects because like what you're saying apache about like the different regimes of colonialism and how we're not treated the same and it takes me back to in my experience being from Haiti we have Dominican Republic and Haiti and it was not the same regimes of colonialism and you can see it in the national identities that get supported by the indigenous people there right but we get conflated we get dislocated yeah. and then that history is lost because then it's re- it's washed into like the white centricity narrative um and i feel it's extremely important like you're saying Connie to to be able to learn from one another and how it's going to help on so many levels and i'm also thinking on the tools of legal like advocacy forms um when you know better you can do better and if you see a system that supports the community elsewhere you can manifest that in your own local environment by drawing from this and to make your legal system stronger or any form of apparatus that you need for like the active part of mobilization 
right? And when I think of like the uh, affirmative action in the States for all its flawedness, it originated uh, mostly with the Asian community and, and then they made it so that it became accessible to other form of minorities in the state. But when you don't know that history, you're not empowered and you don't see the intricacy of the network that's already there historically, but that just needs for us to claim it and our own modernity, then we're bypassing lots of things and we're trying to reinvent the wheels individually in a way that puts you in like a form of competition and like you're seeing Jim Love with that infighting because people are trying to control their own market, their own corner of the market. Yes. And then they don't see beyond that. And again, with like the Quitty by Buck plus community, we do internalize those messages as we're resisting them. And so then there's education internally, there's uh, education transversally, there's education outside and inside of the community. Like you're saying, like a lot of people feel their identity differently. And it's because they're informed by decolonial and colonial influences as well. Um, and again, thinking of the classroom, how I've started to see this in one of my courses, where people would kind of pull from their personal experiences as like white seller, um, Quebecois, French speakers, and then how are they going to translate certain texts and what kind of texts are they going to translate? Because translation and, you know, in my background, yes. like that's what we do. And again, it's super important and which stories get represented, heard and disseminated and with yeah. which authority and with which reach, like, is it going to stay in your community? Is it going to pass onto other realms culturally? Mm. So that's super important. And I love what you said about experiences being turned into productive knowledge, because mm. again, the divine is experience is one thing. And then education is on one another thing. And then going back to what she said about emotional labor, I feel it goes back to what we said about self-care and community, like how, because it's a lot like doing this. And even as you're pulling from your own experience, it's not a neutral reality, but when you talk about it, you have to be strategic in how you share that. Because if the only thing that gets forefronted is the emotionality of it, then it gets more like easily dismissed by instances that don't want, you know, they're going to see that emotion contradict intellect. And so there's a lot of that and what we do, I feel. Yes. What makes it even more complex, listen to this, is all of this stuff we're saying is pretty inaccessible people outside of the academy so we're saying all this complex stuff and we are like busting our ass and our brains to try to understand it but then the people who are affected by oppression outside and a lot of people it's funny because we're actually talking about the people outside of the academy but they are, cannot access our discussion because we're using such words um such lingo um such whatever not like they're, they're not stupid they're very smart but this is like jargon that we understand. So the question is, is how do we then move all this into something that the community can access? And you can comment, but I know we can't answer it today, but I, I would say that this is the biggest challenge of the decolonial, the decolonial hub is being accessible to the community because if we're not accessible to the community, if community knowledge is not intersecting the academy, we're doing nothing. We're just talking with ourselves. And that means nothing to me, <laughs> even though I like what you, what you have to say. And I love what you're saying, Jamila, because it takes me back to like previous conversations we've had, and it's part of our learning curve for sure. Um, and I remember as discussing it, how do we make everything accessible and intelligible? Um, because or else it's just like a ghettoization of knowledge, but that is elitistic. Um, and I think part of the answers, and of course it's an unfolding uh, investigation of the answer, but part of it I feel is translation. And you know when we we translate in, in, inside the same language, right? So when we speak jargon, we're not speaking French or English, we're speaking jargon. 
So even if you're an intellectual, but you come from another tradition, you have to translate for that person in the same language. And I feel that it's as facilitators, right, is to have that like intelligence, uh, emotional intelligence. And when you look at somebody, you can tell if they're following you. Like if you see like a vacant stare, just glaring back, it means you have to adapt. Um, And I feel that we're empowered because we speak different languages inside one language. So we speak professional, we speak technical, we speak intellectual, we speak academic, we speak whatnot. And so like the more we have, then we become that portal for other people, like that access door to knowledge. And I feel, again, it's that self-awareness that we need to have so that we don't uh, ostracize the people that we are a part of. But because our identities are complex, we belong to different realms, even if those realms don't always want to accept us, right? Like the academia, what have you. And I feel it's like when we're at this event and we have one person coming at it like very jargony then we have to step in and then to re like to decode that and to recode it into something that is accessible and also thinking of language itself like if they don't speak english then what if they don't speak french then what right and i think this is part of like the future conversations we're going to have and i remember we were planning an event on language disparities and language politics Um, But then that's an event that we're going to do later on. It was pre-COVID. And we're talking about this even inside the institution, right? Like, what if you have a certain accent that is not part of the recognized, touted system? Like, you are well-spoken, but then the matter that you speak the language, it already, like, there are red flags here. And it's going to deny access or reframe access for you. And if you don't have the tools of mobilization, then it's going to make it inaccessible, to you. So I think it's lots of awareness and to have people, like we're saying, at a seat at the table, like we can speak for somebody who isn't us ultimately. And we need to have people who are really cognizant of the energies in their communities because they already have their own tools of empowerment. Like we can see that end of the spectrum, but the rest is for them to, you know, to share with us and for us to be active listeners on that part. Because I think in, or else it's easy for us to colonize a decolonizing process the same way that we're trying to dismantle it because we embody both privilege and underprivilege. And then the way that we're privileged is in being able to talk the way that we're doing right now. And so we need to be careful that our privilege doesn't spell out underprivilege for our own communities. And I think that's one of the biggest part of the, of the work. It's translating our knowledge for the people outside of the university, outside of the institution, and how do we mobilize action? How do we mobilize our knowledge and make it actionable? So how do we translate our language interdisciplinarily? And how can we do it in a way that isn't exclusionary, but inclusionary? The point about accents too, right? Where's this accent from? Because colonial accents have a proof. There's privileges that come with accents as well, right? But then for different accents, it's not as privileged. That's really interesting to talk about the uh, the accents and just language in general. One of the things I've come up against a lot is when I tell people my name, just if I say Nipachi and they don't know anything else about me, they'll say that they're really impressed with my English or they're really impressed with how well-spoken I am and depending on my mood like sometimes I'll be like well I hope it's good like it's the only language I speak (laughs) yeah you know I'm doing an MFA in English so my name is just (laughs) Connie and the amount of times people ask me like so is that Asian is it an Asian name do you have an Asian name because you can speak English and you have an English name I'm like yes and so I'll be like did you change it did you change it 
no, no, I didn't change it. It's just Connie. There's this cognitive dissonance between my name and the way I look. And I kind of just let them go on that journey. Hmm. <laughs> let them experience it. And that yeah. happens when they ask me where I'm from too, right? Hmm. And I'd say I'm from Toronto, you know. But where are you but from? But we're really, yes. <laughs> Or they would be like, oh, but where are your parents from? Because they, yeah. because some of them know that, like, oh, I can't ask where you're from, so I can ask where your parents are from. And then I'd be like, oh, my parents, they're from Kingston, Ontario. <laughs> and I'm welcome them. to Canada a lot. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I get that all the time as well. And yep. it in certain situations, then with emotional label energies, decide how generous you want to be. And right. the answer and how much of yourself you want to release because you're not entitled to your life story. And I feel we want you to self-justify your existence in the geography yes. in a white centric space. And and so doing then it conforms then. And then if you say what they want to hear, they have a bunch of platitudes. Oh, you yeah, have been to yeah. Haiti. Oh my God, what do you think of the politics there? Or you ask questions about genocides that went on in history. And I go, honey, that's not how you go to <laughs> conversation. And then the worst part is, let's say you speak a language that is unexpected to them. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. it's like you have to pull up the curriculum. Like you have to justify, pull up all your stuff. Oh and my God, yes. It could be your first language. Oh, yeah, you speak well. Or something that surrenders has happened to me is in the Department of Translation where profs would ask me to translate in another language because they feel that with my background, I would be more comfortable translating from either French or English. And it's funny because English speakers would ask me to translate into French and French speakers would ask me to do the opposite and they're really questioning of that. And I've had to do lots of, you know, like heavy lifting to get to a place. I always end up doing what I want. It's just the weight of there that is problematized by like colonialism, but it gives you lots of tools for, you know, mobilization and all that stuff, but you have to grind hard at it. And again, it's always an assumption of your name, like Shislin, Chrislin, Jocelyn, Christine, Purple. Yeah, honey, like whatever. Mine's just Connie and that still gets questioned. I don't understand. (laughs) But honestly, like the name, like the name of an application form, like you're not even there, or you already know you're being dismissed because of it. And right. when you yep. do that, then they are curious, like what is a, what does a Shislin or an Apache or a Kony look like before you enter the space? Yeah, and that's again yeah. problematic. And yeah. I've been asked when I would apply for governmental positions, and we've had people we know in the community up there. They say, "Don't write that you speak Haitian Creole because they're going to know you're Haitian, and you won't make it to the hiring process." Like the first stage so like even in terms of language you know sometimes you have to let some of them drop if you want to have a foot in a door like that's a strategy i've been told times and times again by people who live in that system they tell you i can tell you who's going to sit on that board and they're not going to let you in but then the other Mm -hmm. thing is you can't escape like your presentations like sure but then what are you going to do when they see me like i can't I can this out and I don't, I'm not going to, but again, thinking of accents, thinking of language, right. And, and what it means to other people like colonially. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think one of the things that would be really important in the future when trying to engage with interdisciplinary groups is just to acknowledge that, um, I worked for the government in Nunavut for years and our population is like 85% Inuit. So most of the people who I worked with didn't necessarily have English as their first language. And I often, I have a penchant for 
being able to explain things, because I used to speak Inuit fluently when I was a kid, I understand the way Inuit think in the language of Inuit. So when Inuit didn't understand somebody who was trying to explain something in English, I knew what they didn't get about this, like the form of the sentence. So I was able to translate just within English in a way that Inuit would understand more clearly. Wow. So I did that for a lot of a lot of our government meetings. And I think just having that idea at the forefront of this person is not stupid, they're just not understanding your language. So acknowledging that when you're having meetings with people who aren't of the same discipline or who have accents or who are from different countries or different places in the, the world is really important just so that people... Because people don't think about it. It's it's unconscious. You just make these assumptions. So having it mentioned will, will pique people's thoughts on it more. I also find, and going back to the like experience to action and the living experiences and things like that, I find that you get used to accents. You can, like, as you practice, you understand different accents, different cultures, different ways of thinking over time. So making those spaces available so that everybody can practice that and not necessarily translate from one group or one, because we can translate for each other for sure. And it's so important to do so, but then also creating more spaces for everybody individually to practice that in order. So I think that's definitely something as a hub, but reflecting kind of more on this language um, tangent that we're taking here, I find that practice is so important in order, instead of, of course, using translation to understand better and then slowly practicing yourself towards better understanding. So I find that the digital space might be an opportunity for that. Right. So it's really, I think, maybe more about this safe space where we can recognize each other and then practice not only self-care, but also solidarity and empathy to build that knowledge and that uh, experience for ourselves and for others. I love that so much, Alban. And I know we can't say too much, but you guys can jump in for final words. But I think what you're really talking about is like practicing empathy in this space at this time. It's given us the ability to do that and really take a look at our empathy. Um, and I feel like because of the new normal, we're being forced to like deconstruct our old techniques because the old ways of being aren't really working anymore. We have to do things that are different. And so this is a good opportunity to reflect on all of our uh, inequities um, and all of our kind of um, kind of micro level aggressions that we all kind of have that need to be absolved. And I kind of want to say a few things, or we can say a few things about action tips for learning, self care, and connection that we might have got from this conversation. Like as final words, if you guys are cool. Well, from this chat, I took away many things from everyone. So I love Connie by talking about how can we be more transdisciplinarian. So by breaking outside of the disciplinary supremacy that are a part of how can we get empowered by exchanging knowledges, I would say decolonize language on many levels. So accent, 
the language of power that is used, understand that there's such a thing as colonial languages, and also think of accents and privileges. I would say, like we're saying, uh, Jamila and Apache, so complexify allyship and colonialism. We're not all colonized in the same ways. And thusly, the opportunities for decolonization are not going to be the same for everybody within and outside like Kuti Bipa community. Thinking of access, so access to internet, to technological infrastructure, is that the same for everyone? So how can we redefine possibility and alternatives for people, understanding that access is very limited and challenging? And Kony about turning all that knowledge into productive knowledge and us at the hub, how we do experience to action series, because I feel the natural progression is toward action, because if it's, it stays theoretical, then it's, it's nothing. It's not something that we can execute, that we can implement, and the potential for change, well, is, you know, is nullified. So that would be like my nugget for everybody. I think you nailed it, and I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Same here. That was a really delicious nugget. <laughs> that was epic, man. Epic. Yeah. Also, just to add um, to the delicious nugget, uh, is to how do we also not problematize the knowledges that we don't have? Right. And that also affects the power dynamics in the class. Being interdisciplinary is not meant to be something that is a problem. It's meant to be a solution. Amen there, Connie. Beautiful. And that's a wrap for today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This was a really invigorating episode. For listeners at home, please check us out on Facebook at the T-Colonial Perspectives and Practices Hub page. And if you'd like to be part of the community, you can find our email there and don't hesitate to reach out and say hi. We'd love to hear from you, your ideas, your opinions. Please be part of our Decolonial initiative. Thanks everyone for listening in. Thank you everyone for being here with us and stay tuned for our next episode.